Oh, good morning, church. I was looking through my records. I'm one of those weird anal people that when they organize their files for this kind of thing, you know, I put it in a word processor, I categorize it by year, month, and day in the aviation format because that's what I understand. Any guesses when the last time was I had the privilege of standing before you to speak? And if you're here in the first service, don't cheat. Six years? Not quite six years. About an hour and a half, give or take. Yes, that's the correct answer. Before that, however, it had been three and a half years. Um, it's been a really long time, and I've uh, certainly missed it, and so I'm glad for the privilege to be here again today. Uh, thank you. Uh, my wife informed me after the first service that I talk too fast, so I'm going to try and be mindful of that. But <laughs> I've, I've known this for a long time, uh, but I still haven't fixed it, so I don't know what that says about my character and will to actually change. Anyway, if, if you miss something, grab the podcast and put it on about half speed, and it'll probably come out roughly normal, and uh, we should be all right. Today we speak about freedom. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Freedom is won at great cost. Freedom is not cheap, and freedom requires sacrifice. I'm going to give you three different pieces of, pieces of information, and we'll see if we can connect them. The first is a number, and then there's two dates. The number is 85 to 104 million. The first date is April 4th, 1968. And the third date is 13th century at a place, Scotland. It all makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, not really. I, I saw Lorena's uh, eyebrow go up, so we better go a little further into this. 85 to 104 million is the estimated number of casualties between World War I and World War II. Uh, I'm not a history buff by any stretch of the imagination. I won't profess to be so, but Google does wonders in uh, you know, alleviating gaps of knowledge. And so if you were to Google something like World War I causes, you'd find uh, some interesting things. And the most simple one I came across had basically five items. And the five items that really sparked it off, the fifth one is the assassination of the Archduke uh, of Austria. So, I mean, that would very clearly be a you know, kind of act of war or something could be responded to uh, in terms of an act of war. The other four are a lot more complex. There was a lot of things burbling under the surface that let that assassination kind of take off. Things like nationalism and imperialism and militar militarism. Uh, the, kind of the core of all of it is essentially a selfishness at a very grand governmental national kind of level, or at least the people who are running it, of wanting the stuff that's in your backyard and wanting to expand their powers and prove their dominance over other people. And that's part of human nature. Like I said, I'm not a historian. So if you're a real historian and you want to set the record straight with me afterwards, I'm all ears. That's what I understand at this point. At the end of World War I, after defeating the Germans, the Allies dictated a very harsh peace, in quotation marks, on them, including massive financial payments, severe restrictions to their military, a loss of territory, and basically said you have to accept sole responsibility for the war. This is peace. This is peace. And so that war, which was to end all wars, was followed by another war, the war after the war to end all wars, namely World War II, which grew out of, uh, I would say, a lot of frustration from that harsh peace that was dictated and the oppression uh, that was felt by Germany. And so Germany, under the leadership of Hitler, was able to annex Austria 
and ignore the Treaty of Versailles and build his war machine because the rest of the world didn't want any more war. The first one was bad enough. Let's just avoid it at all costs. So we'll just kind of, that, that wasn't too bad. That wasn't too bad. By the time he employed his blitzkrieg t- attacks, beginning with Poland, basically left Europe and the world reeling and on the back foot. We're playing catch-up for the next number of years. This would become the absolute bloodiest war the world had ever seen, involving both the Holocaust and the first atomic bomb. The war was a bloody grind to the absolute end, and that phrase doesn't do it close to justice. I'm not sure that you could possibly use the words winner and loser in this context with any sort of, it just, it just doesn't fit here. But one thing is absolutely sure, that there are some things like freedom that are worth giving your life for. April 4th, 1968, brings us to a little bit more modern history, Martin Luther King Jr., who was a Baptist minister, perhaps the most visible and prominent speaker and leader for the civil rights movement in the U.S. from uh, 1955 till 1968. Uh, maybe most famous for his I Have a Dream speech, uh, which was uh, very inspiring and been parodied, parodied in all kinds of ways. He championed civil rights, and if you're not familiar with uh, kind of what that entails, it'd be things like the color of your skin shouldn't dictate where you can or cannot sit on a bus. Uh, which, growing up in Canada as I did, the, this is an absolutely preposterous thing, but it was real. Unfortunately, I think in some parts of the world it is real. And he would champion these civil rights through nonviolence and civil disobedience. So, for example, he led the African Americans in Montgomery, Alabama, who made up 75% of the bus passengers, to boycott the bus system for over a year. That's a pretty big hit. <laughs> I would say. Somebody finally took notice. And during this time, King's house was bombed. He was arrested. But ultimately, it led to a judicial decision in Boder, or sorry, Browder versus Gale that this kind of bus segregation was actually unconstitutional. The powers that be, who had somehow allowed this to exist, decided this is, unconstitu- this is actually against the founding documents, the founding beliefs of our country, and we need to make it right. It's an incredible victory. In addition to race injustices, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. opposed all kinds of other uh, injustices as well, uh, one of which was economic injustice. So while he was continuing to lead these nonviolent protests, this time in Memphis, Tennessee, it was unfair wage practices towards African-American workers uh, in in Memphis. Uh, King was shot and he was killed on his motel balcony, April 4th, 1968. Because there's some things, like freedom, that are worth giving your life for. 13th century Scotland brings us to a movie that I encountered in the mid-90s called Braveheart. (laughs) It retells the story of a historical figure, William Wallace, leading the oppressed Scots to overthrow overthrow the tyranny of the English in the late 1200s, early 1300s. Admittedly, the movie takes some artistic license in telling the story. Uh, and I'm just going to stick with that version of the story because it's the only one I really know. But the story goes something like this. After William Wallace's wife has been murdered by the English, Wallace leads his clan to slaughter the English garrison in his hometown. This is a really bloody introduction (laughs) to a sermon. Uh, Bear with me. We're going places. Okay. 
He slaughters the English garrison, and he, he kind of continues to lead this guerrilla warfare against the English, and he slowly gains this reputation, and his legend grows in the surrounding clans. So in a particularly inspiring part of the movie, as he's about to lead an army of his countrymen out to war, he says this. I am William Wallace. I'm not going to do the Scottish accent. I, it just, it's not going to work. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What would you do with that freedom? Will you fight? And one soldier cries back to him, fight? Against that? The English hordes that have come to assemble against them? No, we will run and we will live. To which Wallace challenges, I fight and you may die. Run, and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for the chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Later, having been betrayed and captured by the Scottish nobles, Wallace tried for treason He's sentenced to public torture and beheading. Turns out the historical version is actually much worse than the movie version. And he's given a chance at the very end as he's being tortured to recant one last time with this word, mercy. And Wallace instead says, freedom. Because there's some things like freedom that are worth your dying breath. After the battles are fought, the court cases decided, after the sacrifice is made, there is freedom. And God loves freedom. This is the central story of the whole Bible. If I were to pick one theme and say this weaves through the entire narrative from Genesis to Revelation, this is the theme. It is freedom. God liberates people. It's who he is. It's what he does. You can't talk about the Bible if you're not going to talk about freedom. You can't talk about God if you're not going to talk about freedom. In the Old Testament, there are two major events. Basically, two major events that shape the whole Israelite consciousness. The one is the exodus from Egypt. The other is the exile to Babylon. Just about everything in the Israelite psyche, you can sort out with those two pieces of the puzzle. But we're going to talk about the freedom from Egypt. After God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, in order to worship him in the desert, he spoke to them. But you've got to pay attention closely to the text here. Because as one author opened my eyes to, and hopefully will do the same for you, one author points this out. He says, when the voice of God spoke at Sinai, it did not begin by saying, I am the Lord your God who created heaven and earth. It began by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the land of bondage. Did you catch that? God's first words to his people when they're out of slavery is not, I made you. Yahweh's first word to the people is, I have made you free. God loves 
freedom. And for Paul, the God who freed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery is the very same God who now frees us. He sent at just the right time his son on a rescue mission. This is all from Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. Paul reminds us that Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present age, the present evil age. And in case we're not sure what in the world does rescue mean, he makes it really, really clear in chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And again in chapter 5, verse 13, which is where we're going to get to in just a moment, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. It seems, in fact, the Galatians knew this. They understood it. They had walked in it. It seems that in terms of their freedom in Jesus, they actually had a really strong start. Paul says all kinds of things about them that are very positive. I mean, we've been ragging on them for a few weeks, right? If you haven't been here the last few weeks, go back and just read chapter 1 and 2 um, and 3 and 4 of Galatians, and you'll see, <laughs> we'll see what we're talking about. Paul is pretty harsh on them, but buried in there are some really important nuggets. They received Paul in his illness. In fact, Paul says, you would have torn out your eyes for me if you could have. They believed the good news of Jesus Christ. They had been baptized into Christ. They had received the Holy Spirit. They had, in fact, experienced miracles. Paul even says to them, you are running a good race. The Galatians were actually on target. But in that spacious freedom, which Jesus bought for them, they were enticed to wander back into slavery, to try to add by their own efforts to Jesus' saving mission. Maybe they wondered, maybe I've wondered, is believing really enough? Maybe they wondered if it was it's just, this is too easy. This is legitimately too good to be true. And if I've learned anything in this life, if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Maybe they pined after a more certain structure and activity, something that somehow they could maybe repay. But Paul says over and over and over and over and over again, you don't need circumcision. You don't need special food laws. You don't need special religious festivals. Jesus' crucifixion took care of it. Jesus did the heavy lifting. Jesus took it all, and there is nothing that you can add to or take away from that. You have nothing left to pay. Be free. God loves to free people. And does it God's way at God's own expense. But the trouble is, we the people, we don't always know how to handle that freedom. Because God calls us not into a self-indulgent freedom, but into his freedom. This is critical. We can't miss this. He does not call us into a corrupted version of freedom that is fed to us by our culture, over which wars have been fought. He calls us into his freedom. Having told the Galatians in no uncertain terms that we cannot possibly add anything 
to the saving grace of Jesus by our actions. Nothing. There is zero you can do, have done, or will do that will add to what Jesus has done. Are we, are we on page with that? This is offensive. I'm a little offended because I'm a pretty good guy. Don't you know how many sermons I've preached, Jesus? Have you no idea how talented a teacher I am? Do you not know how servingly I act? None of that counts. None of that helped get me into your good graces. Correct. And whatever good you think you have done over and above the good that you think I've done, it's in the same place. There's nothing we add to the saving grace of Jesus. But we might be left with the impression after all that, that therefore it's a free-for-all. I do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. And that's where we need to read the rest of what Paul has to say, Galatians chapter 5. If you want to turn there, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. I promised we'd get there. Here we are. We have arrived. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Paul starts off by saying, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. When God freed the Israelites from Egypt, he didn't just free them from something. He freed them for something. And I think this is a key thing that we need to understand about God and God's freedom. When God freed the Israelites from Egypt, he freed them for something. God's freedom is not an absence, as we so commonly think of freedom. Uh, You know, the absence of shackles or prison bars, the absence of an oppressor or the absence of order, but it's actually a presence. It's not an absence, it's a presence. It's God's presence. God freed the Israelites from Egypt that they might come to know and understand his character and ultimately reflect his holiness and his character to the world. Likewise, when God frees us through the sacrifice of Jesus, he's not just freeing us from all those things that are wrapped up in that great big word, sin. Yes, he rescues us from the present evil age. Yes, he rescues us from our sin. But he frees us for something. Jesus frees us for something. Freedom in Jesus is not an absence, as we commonly think of freedom. It's not an absence of rules or an absence of expectations or an absence of order. It's a presence. And it's specifically the presence of the Holy Spirit. freedom that we're called into is nothing short of that. Jesus has freed us from sin and flesh so that we might listen to the Holy Spirit and come to know and understand his character in an unprecedentedly intimate way. I don't think we fully appreciate what we have post-Pentecost. I don't think we fully appreciate the intimacy and the access and the closeness that God desires and has made real in us through the Holy Spirit because it's just always been from the day you were born. The day you were born, that was, that was open and available to you. But there was a day 
when that wasn't the case. And it was all mediated. It was all through the priest. And it was all through the sacrifice. It was all through the law keeping. So we come to know by listening to the Holy Spirit and understand God's character in an unprecedentedly intimate way. And ultimately so that we can reflect his goodness and his character to the world around us. In fact, Paul is going to point out the stark contrast of freedom in the flesh and the freedom to which Jesus has called us. And they are worlds apart. Freedom in the flesh is nothing short of self-centered. It's freedom that clings either self-righteously to the fallacy that I can earn or keep my salvation by what I do, that I can pull myself up by my bootstraps trying to dot the I's and cross the T's through strict religious observances of maybe prayer or fasting or church attendance or really knowing the Scriptures, that somehow those things are going to be what really, that is freedom in the flesh. Or in another variation, it's freedom that rebels against any and all moral or ethical expectations on the other side that literally serves oneself first and last in every interaction, giving zero consideration to the other. First in the food line, first in the relationship, first to speak, first in the merge lane, first. That is freedom in the flesh. And both paths, both the law-keeping path, which Paul has been railing against in this book, and the flesh-self-centered path, both of those freedoms lead to destruction of community and relationships. I mean, can you imagine existing in a community where the top goal is to keep all the rules perfectly? I don't know about you, but I have zero desire to be part of that. Because you know what happens every time somebody's looking at you. They're looking at you for no other reason than to recognize how really good they are and how far you still have to go. And it becomes a very nitpicky, backbiting culture of dotting I's and crossing T's, and it is just, it destroys community. It destroys community. Or do you want to be on the other side? The other one having zero regard for anyone but self. Can you imagine trying to set up a potluck when that's the case? I'm going to show up and eat all the food and provide none. It's freedom in the flesh. But the freedom to which Jesus has called us is entirely selfless. In contrast to the flesh, it's interesting here. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say in contrast to the flesh, spirit. That's what I expected. I expect him to contrast flesh and spirit because those are the two that oppose each other. He's going to a little bit later, but not here. Take a look really close. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but, here's the contrast, serve one another humbly in love. In contrast to the flesh, Paul actually says it's about mutual, selfless service that is characterized by love. This is the presence of Jesus in freedom. Of all the events in Paul's life that have shaped him, it seems that Jesus' crucifixion is the one that has most profoundly shaped him. Here are the words he speaks right out of Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This shapes Paul. And at the end of the letter, listen to this. May I never boast 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Jesus was selfless, so Paul was selfless, wanting nothing more than for Christ to live in and through him. Jesus is selfless. So we who believe are selfless, wanting nothing more than for Christ to live in and through us. God's freedom. God's freedom, perfectly captured in Jesus' crucifixion. It is selfless service. And living in selfless service is something that we freely choose. One spirit-led step at a time. Paul continues. Let's get back to Galatians chapter 5, picking up in verse 16. So I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. In describing this epic battle between flesh and spirit, we might expect Paul to give us a new list of rules to follow. We might expect him to say, okay, so... Those are the rules of the old life. Here's the rules of the new life. But Jesus, sorry, not Jesus, he doesn't fall prey to the temptation. Paul doesn't fall uh, prey to the temptation of replacing Jewish law with Jesus' law. He doesn't do it. Instead, Paul talks about fulfillment. We have to back up just a half a verse there into verse uh, 14. Two verses, I guess. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this command. This one commandment, Paul says. When he talks about fulfilling the law, He talks about doing the intent of the law. It has the force not only of doing the law, but also like how would you interpret that law in all its many, like what trajectory is that law on? In other words, loving your neighbor as yourself. That is the trajectory that all of the law of God is on. It's a word that literally refers to filling the container to the brim, but obviously has lots of kind of Uh, you know, different meanings depending on the context. And here it has to do with fulfilling, not just filling. But if you wanted to somehow fill up perfectly, dot all the I's and cross all the T's, although it's not the right metaphor in this case, if you want to fill up that container, Paul says you love your neighbor as yourself because the whole law is contained right there. Rather than trying to do every single rule, we try to go in the same direction as the Spirit. Every law, Paul says, can be fulfilled if we love our neighbors like ourselves. And so he gives us this, what I would say is a radical approach to morality and ethics, right? We're in a Western legal system. We like to know, hey, if this, then that. Um, and then once that case gets run through a couple times, you say, oh, we have some case law now to, hey, but you interpreted it differently here. And we, we want to have a rule for every possible circumstance, right? That's just kind of the framework of the world that we live in. And Paul says, mm, that's not the way it is in Jesus. In Jesus, you walk by the Spirit. I say to you, walk by the Spirit. It's not a checkbox. It's a voice. It's a way. It's a path. We've already seen the central principle in Paul's life is Jesus' crucifixion. And with the right relationship, you don't need the law. You don't need to tell me how to live that out. I, I know. I know what that direction looks like, and I just need to keep walking in it. I had a great conversation with Jonathan, I don't know, a while back. Because every conversation I have with Jonathan is great. 
And we were talking about parenting and kids because that's the stage of life that we are in. And as we're reflecting, as I've done some reflection on it, uh, in their early days, it's, uh, it's a lot, it's very directive, right? I mean, they just don't know what they don't know. And so there's a lot of, yes, you can do this. No, you can't do that. Yes, you can do this. No, you can't do that. And then eventually it just becomes uh, more like just, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. <laughs> and they come back with why. Uh, but it, why, 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 why? It's a really frustrating space of life to be in. And one of the things that Jonathan was talking uh, to me about, and he was saying, you know, the direction I'm trying to go with my kids, I'm trying to invite them into this space, which is, okay, maybe you didn't violate the exact letter of what I just said. We have a bench seat in the middle of our car, unfortunately. There are three across. Turns out I have three kids, three wonderful kids whom I love dearly. Uh, but they sit in very close proximity to each other. And uh, at various times, it can be like, Jesse, stop touching your sister. And then one of the sisters freaks out. And I'm like, Jesse? <laughs> and he'd be like, what? I'm not touching them. And if you look in the rearview mirror, he's not, but he's this close. <laughs> and Jonathan said, look, like what I'm trying to talk with my kids about is like, I know you didn't violate the letter of what I just said, but you're not going in the direction that I'm going. <laughs> That's what Paul says here. You don't need the letter of the law. Go in the direction that I'm going. I say to you, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. You will not desire the flesh. Okay, so what does that actually look like? So one of the things I've struggled with uh, through most of my life, and you wouldn't know because I'm fairly calm up here, is anger. Uh, I can actually fly off the handle uh, pretty uh, deeply and quickly depending on the situation. And this comes out always at bedtime. Uh, Those of you who are parents, again, may be familiar with the uh, stress and the lack of willpower and controlling your character. Anyway, good spiritual formation has happened there. So for a long, long time, I have been asking God to help me with uh, some of my uh, frustration and rage and anger. And, um, and that's been a major selfless kind of undertaking. You want to talk about going in the same direction as the Spirit. And I remember very clearly one time uh, when we were in Texas, and I was a very, very young parent still. Jesse was maybe two. And I remember being with him, and I was like, I just want you to get in the bath. And if you don't get in the bath, I'm going to throw you in the bath. And if I don't throw you in the bath, I'm throwing you out the window. <laughs> like, it was one of those nights. <clears throat> Bear with me. <laughs> Jesus has lots of grace. And I, I was in the middle of this. I mean, I've been reflecting a lot on character, and I still don't have it sorted out just for the record. But in this one moment, I remember watching him take off down the hallway. I'm like, come here. And so, of course, what does he do? He turns around and goes the other way. And maybe for the first time in my entire life, I felt this very distinct, I, I'm not going to, I'll call it a voice, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't something audible I heard with my ears, but do you know what I mean? And it said this, play. Play. Did you know that there is not a single instruction in the entire Bible that says go play? Do you know what I need to do to sort out my anger stuff? Go play. Walk with the Spirit, Paul says. Go this way with me. You want to know what the kingdom's like? Follow that kid down the hallway and hear his laughter. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. You were called to be free. So I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the 